Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. When you compare the French-Polish film director Roman Polanski to some of the younger men who have had their careers cut short in the Me Too era, one might think that Polanski would be the most radioactive of them all. Al Franken, to take one example, resigned from the U.S. Senate after being accused of inappropriately touching and kissing women. Comedian Louis C.K. came under attack when it was revealed that he masturbated in front of women backstage. Author Juno Diaz resigned as chair of the Pulitzer Prize board after a woman claimed he forcibly kissed her. Polanski, by contrast, pled guilty to a much worse sin. In 1978, he raped a 13-year-old girl. And to this day, he remains a fugitive from U.S. justice. Yet this month, his new film, An Officer and a Spy, was awarded the Grand Jury Prize and a standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival. The survival of Polanski's career owes much to Europe's more liberal attitude to male sexual misbehavior. But it also seems connected to a complicating element within his rape narrative. Polanski's victim, Samantha Geimer, never fully played the role that prosecutors wanted. And in the years since her rape, she has refused to bow to her critics. In the early days, these critics included conservatives who sought to shame her as a wanton temptress. And now, in the modern era, they include progressives who want Geimer to play her expected role as wounded victim. This week, I spoke to Geimer about all this, including the effect that these events have had on her mother, who came under intense criticism for allowing her daughter to be alone with Polanski during two separate photo shoots, all those many years ago in Los Angeles. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Tell me, how did you come to live in Hawaii? I live in in Hawaii on the little island of Kauai. Um, Back in the late 80s, my mother instigated the charge and my whole family, we all moved to Hawaii. Uh, My sister, our husbands, and now we have children. So it was my mom's fault. She did it and we all followed. Does the geographical dislocation from the continental United States allow you some respite from some of the perhaps unwanted attention that I'm sure you still get? Yes. Being so far away from what we call the mainland has been a real blessing. The notoriety of my case is just irrelevant over here. Um, And with a few kind of rare exceptions, we have no trouble, no publicity only a few times have ever had a paparazzi over here. I imagine if I lived in Southern California, it would be a much different situation for me. To some extent, your life, it must ride in waves. Like there'll be a movie or there'll be a news item or there'll be a book. Then someone like me will come calling and demand to interview you. Is, has, has that been the pace of your life? That, that's exactly what it's like. It, it just comes in waves when it comes. And that will always have something to do with what Roman is doing, or maybe just something that's reported in the press, true or not, about Roman. Um, certainly, 
when they tried to extradite him from Switzerland was the most dramatic tsunami for me. Um, but it, it just disappears, and you never know what might happen. And it's been 42 years, so at this point, I'm very comfortable and have come to terms with this part of my life. Tell me something important about your life that you're going to want people to remember 50 years from now, 100 years from now, that has nothing to do with Roman Polanski. I think for me, my family is really the most important thing in my life. I have three adult sons. They're probably, I feel like they're my greatest achievement. I never really pursued success in a in a career. I worked, you know, because we all have to work to make a living. So I think my sons are what I'm most proud of. And I've always tried to be kind and helpful to people. Even when I wrote the book, what makes me most proud of my book is how many people told me that they connected with it and it helped them somehow get through struggles of their own. One of the things you talked about a while back with my colleague Jamie Palmer was the distinction between your status as somebody who was victimized by the crime of rape and the identity of a rape victim. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I think there's two parts of that question. One is, if you're victimized, do you remain a victim? And is that how you identify? But the other part would be the actual saying, I have been raped. Now, I can say that because I was underage and statutory rape, that's what you call it. But I was never injured or brutalized or terrorized or anything like that. So I think I feel like it's different for me than it is for other victims who of rape who have really been hurt. So I don't identify as a victim anyway, because stuff happens to all of us, and you either get past it or you don't. So I'm getting past it. But also, I, I think I just never really felt that victimized by Roman to begin with, which is a little odd for people to understand, but that's, that's just the truth of it. One of the, to my mind, somewhat absurd claims about you is that you have Stockholm Syndrome, <laughs> which seems ridiculous because if, if you actually did have Stockholm Syndrome, you, you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't acquiesce to the idea that you were raped at all. Uh, when I talk to you, it doesn't sound like somebody who's operating under some kind of traumatized delusion. When I read your interview with Jamie Palmer, you talk about things like, well, yes, it was rape, but I never felt terrorized. Uh, I didn't feel that I was in a state of, of horrified panic. Despite the fact this was clearly a horrible crime, you mentioned that Roman Polanski wasn't trying to inflict pain. He wasn't being sadistic. As I was reading that, it felt like a sort of thought crime. In this era, we're not allowed to say that because once something is rape, there is nothing that you're allowed to say, even if it's basic things about human nature, like was, was he trying to cause you pain or was he not trying to cause you pain? Mm -hmm. You're simply not allowed to go there. Even though as moral creatures, we go there with our thoughts, even if we don't go with our words, you go with your words. And what's astounding is it sounds like People who self-identify as champions of rape survivors, they've come after you, sometimes viciously so. Oh, yeah, they, they don't like it. I speak for what happened to me, and I'm allowed to do that. And nobody gets to change my story, make it better, make it worse, make it different. I know what happened. I know how I felt. And I'm going to speak my own truth about it. That doesn't make me a victim blamer. That doesn't mean I have Stockholm Syndrome. It just means I know what happened to me, and I've spent 42 years of my life 
with a general public outcry of, we're going to change your story. And at the beginning of this, I was the monster. Now Roman's the monster. But it's all been a bunch of bull because the truth is the truth. When people come after me because I'm not towing the line and saying the words they want to hear, it just shows they never supported me in the first place, that they don't really care. As I was reading your story, the metaphor I had in my mind that your story, which hasn't really changed, it's kind of like a rock sitting on a beach, and the tide comes in and the tide goes out, and that tide can be seen as representing political fashion. And maybe back in the 70s, the the political fashion was very conservative, and women were slut-shamed when they were raped. Uh, But now the political fashion is, is on the other side of the spectrum, and women are shamed if Perhaps in some cases they don't hew to script. Yes. And by the way, the rock on the beach, that was beautiful. Thank you. I made me feel just a little bit better about my life, the way you said that so eloquently. Um, But yeah, I feel exactly like that. Like no matter what, I'm going to be somebody screaming at me. Somebody's demanding that I shouldn't say what I say. Someone's criticizing me. Someone's blaming me for something. So I, I, came to a a long time ago, I understood this is a battle I can't win. People will say whatever they want to say, true or not. They did it to me. They do it to Roman. So, you know, what are you going to do when you're in a situation like that? The only thing I can do is say, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to tell the truth. And if you're going to come after me and imply like I'm a rape apologist and I'm a victim blamer just because I won't change my actual truth of what I've been through to suit your purpose, then you're a shitty activist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the term you use is activist, but there is a sort of tribal aspect here, because one of the themes that seem to emerge is this idea that people who have been victimized by rape, there's this very well-intentioned and humane desire to create a spirit of solidarity among rape survivors. But perhaps out of that spirit of solidarity comes the idea that, look, we're on the same team. And when you're on a team, there are certain rules, you wear a uniform, uh, you stick to the scripts, you support the team, and that somehow you're not a team player. We're now living in the era of Me Too, which, as I understand it, is meant to bring solidarity to all victims of sexual abuse. That's a beautiful and powerful thing, and we should all support each other and realize that so many of us are walking around with this kind of thing, experience in our life. But then to force people to feel pain they don't feel, to insist what happened to them should harm them, and further insist that they are not allowed to recover or they're hurting other people, that's just backwards. We should respect everybody's individuality and however hurt you are and whatever it takes you to recover from that, that's what we should support. This shouldn't be about throwing people under the bus and getting mad at people who got through something easier. I literally feel like people have been trying to make what happened to me worse than it was. And that's strange to live your life with people going, no, you're not allowed to be okay. What happened to you was horrible and horrific. And it's like, no, it wasn't. We shouldn't victimize people further to prove our own point. It infuriates me. (laughs) 
We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. A few weeks ago, Roman Polanski, his new film got a standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival. <laughs> that made a lot of people angry. There's something wrong in the universe when, when a rapist gets a standing ovation. That's how a lot of people would see that scene. And so they're going to use any available piece of, of emotional or political capital they have to tear that person down. You're the best thing they have. Do you feel any kind of understanding for why they're misusing you like that? And do you feel the impulse to, to maybe distort your own feelings a little bit because you find it galling to see him fetid like that? No, I don't. I feel two ways. First, I'm tired of people using what happened to me to suit their own purposes. I don't like it. I'm sick of it. Second, I'm happy that he receives the award. I clapped myself when he won the Oscar. Good for him. Why shouldn't he be allowed to live his life and create his art and make a living and do a job? How does what he does for a living have anything to do with me? And why would I care if he's good at it or he's bad at it? It seems completely separate for me. And I have always resented being drug into it. Is that the kind of world we want to live in where anybody who's made a mistake is forbidden from ever contributing to society again. It's ridiculous. And they're not applauding him because he had sex with me when I was almost 14. They're applauding his movies. In my life, the amount of abuse that I have taken and he has taken, I am happy for him. If it makes people angry, I'm glad. If it upsets them, it's like, well, that's what you get. You know, everybody wants to, you know, crap on him and crap on me. And now he got an award because he did a good job. So in your face, haters, like, honestly, that's how I feel on the inside. <laughs> well, there's a thought crime after thought crime in that response. I'm, yeah, I'm just, I just, I will not behave. I don't know. I don't know what to say. <laughs> One early indicator that you were very precocious intellectually is that, you seem to have been a very keen observer of the incentives that different actors within the criminal justice system had during your trial. People looking for celebrity or publicity. From a, a very early point in the process, you seem to have realized that it wasn't good versus bad, but that everybody was being manipulative. You know, when I was 14, 
it was clear to me that what was happening in the courts was wrong. My father was a criminal defense attorney. And even at that young age, the, the corruption and the misconduct was just so obvious, even I couldn't miss it. Of course, he doesn't want to go to jail. So initially, he's going to be like, I don't think I did that. And, you know, I, I even understood, like, his attorney came after me incredibly hard for me just being 14. But I understood, like, that was his job. It always made sense to me the parts everybody was playing. His uh, arrest in Switzerland, that's because Stephen Cooley was running to be attorney general. That's all that was. Had nothing to do with right or wrong or facts. It was him using the case to hope to get elected. Now, I resent that and I'm angry about it, but it's not it's not hard for me to understand that and see why people do what they do. Tell me about the effect that everything that happened had on your mother. Oh my poor mom. Oh my gosh. I mean, I don't I don't know how she made it through. I don't think she let go of the guilt until recently, until Marina Zinovich made her movie, Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired, and then I wrote my book to just try and, like, let me write the truth down. Um, I think it took all of that for her to let go of a guilt she carried. You know, she was an actress. That's how she supported our family. She quit acting. She went into real estate. She felt responsible and carried that guilt for decades. And, and the fear of the fear that somebody would find out who she was. She continued to be a quite well-known spokeswoman for a car dealership back in the day. And if anybody found out she was the terrible mom who sent her daughter off with Roman, you know, that, that was her main source of income. She would have lost that. So just the hiding, the guilt. I'm so happy now that I know that she's been able to let go of it. But it, it took over 30 years. I admire her, and she came through it, but boy, she she's the one who really got hurt in all of this. How did that manifest itself? I was a quite angry young girl in the couple years following all the, the problems we had with the court, especially up until when Roman left the country, which is when things got better for me. I feel like she really did, like, tiptoe around me and give me everything I wanted. And like I had everybody walking on pins and needles because I was just mean and pissed off and this horrible teenager, which a lot of, you know, a lot of us are horrible teenagers. But I think, I mean, I know it changed her relationship with me. If I think about it right now, it's kind of like she expected a lot less of me after that. And I could kind of rule the roost a little bit and be more self-destructive than I think she ever would have allowed. I've kept you on the line for a while, so I'll make this my last question. As we've discussed, we live in an era when it seems like everybody loves to divide people between the good and the bad. Entertainers were allowed to enjoy and entertainers were supposed to excommunicate. I'm curious where you think Roman Polanski, what category he would fall into if we are to understand him in a more nuanced way. I'm going to use a, a crude arithmetic index because that's sometimes how people think, including me, I guess. On a scale of, say, 0 to 10, where 0 is a normal person and 10 is a monster, where would Roman Polanski fall, in your estimation? I would give Roman a 0 because I do know him, and he's a, a, he's a decent person, and he's got a wife of 30 years who's a wonderful woman and children and Everything I know about him all these years um, is that he's, he's a good guy. 
I'm sorry, people don't want to hear that, but that's what I know of him. He's been very kind to me on many occasions. Samantha Geimer, thank you so much for joining the Quillette Podcast. Okay, well, great. Thanks very much. You have a wonderful day. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.